All right. All across the room this morning, every disciple of Jesus, we're about to call on God. We're going to do that together. And I'm going to voice that prayer. We are not listening to someone pray. We are all collectively calling on God together and asking God to speak to us from His Word this morning. So let's pray together. Father, we come to You today with a shout of praise, Lord. We celebrate the saving work of Jesus Christ. God, we thank You this morning that there is no one more rich in all the created universe than the believers in this room. No one, Lord. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places today, in this moment, is ours in Christ Jesus. Lord, You have chosen us. You have given us justification and adoption. And You have promised us eternal glory. You have united us to Christ forever. Seated us Together in the heavenly places. Look how rich you have made us, Lord. The dirty ones, the unclean ones, God. You have brought into your own family and given royal robes. Made us priests and a holy nation. And what can we do, Lord, but praise your holy name. But lift up the cup of our salvation and call on the name of the Lord. And so we do that today, Lord. We celebrate your powerful saving work in our life. And we ask you to do it again. Do it over and over and over again in our city and in this local church. Demonstrate the power of your glorious gospel. God, we confess to you today that dangers are all around us, Lord. And you have told us about this in your word, God, that there is a devouring lion. Satan himself wants to sift us and devour us. God, many of us in this room know the testimony of sin in the early chapters of Genesis that it is crouching at the door. It clings so closely to us, Lord. And we ask for your help today in the midst of that battle. Be the living God in the midst of your church. Be the God of power and the God of great glory. Demonstrate your power to deliver your people from sin. And do it today, Lord. God, we are a needy people. In the midst of this warfare, in the midst of these dangers. God, if you left us to ourselves, we have no chance. God, sin is stubborn. Like Pharaoh of old, when demanded to let your people go, it refuses and says, I will not let them go. We need you to deliver us with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Do it, Lord. Show how powerful you are in the midst of the earth. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters whom my soul loves today. That you would deliver us from the grip of indwelling sin. That you would drive it back today, Lord. That you would stand by your word. And that you would show that it is true. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Hallelujah to your name. That you are more powerful, Lord Jesus, than sin. 
God, visit your people today. Visit us as we give attention to your word. We ask you to drive your statutes and your truths deep in us by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Our text today will be Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. And we'll begin by reading that together. Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 and six. This is the Word of God to this local church this morning. Colossians 3, verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. This is the Word of God to His church today. Now, we're going to spend our time together this morning <coughs> diving into the topic of what has been called Christian mortification. The Christian's warfare against sin. And I want to say this on the front end. This is by way of introduction. I want to plead with you to prepare to hear a sermon today that has a tone that matches the text that we just read. Okay, There's all kinds of different tones in the Word of God. All kinds. Okay, Today, the tone is very, very serious. Okay, We are going to, you're going to hear a sermon today about killing something and about the wrath of God. Why? Because that's what the text is about. Okay, So I want you to prepare to hear that. And we, and we know in this culture that that can come across in a wrong way. You say to somebody at lunch, you say, well, what'd you, what was your sermon about today? And you say about killing something. And somebody says, what kind of church are you going to? That's, that sounded like a real encouraging sermon. So I want you to prepare for that today. You are going to hear a commandment from God's Word that you are commanded to kill something today, to murder something, to execute something, to take the life of something. Now, before we dive into the details of Christian mortification, I want to back up and I want to give us just a quick, two quick reminders about the context of the commandment in Colossians chapter 3 verse 5 because chapter 3 verse 5 is not given to us in a vacuum. It's given to us in a context, in a, in a letter that has a context. And so the first thing I want to remind everybody in the room is that there's something very important that you need to know about killing sin. Okay, So I want to draw your attention to the audience that received this commandment. And the first thing I want to draw your attention to is that the people that received this commandment in verse 5 are believers. They're Christians. Look back in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. It says this, If then you have been raised with Christ. Paul is talking to Christians. Okay? Now, that might not sound earth-shaking, but let me just remind you with that phrase that these are the only kinds of people on planet Earth that can kill sin. 
Those who have been raised with Christ. Resurrected ones. The ones who have been born again. Ones who have been made a new creation. Been given a supernatural new nature. Nobody else can kill sin. Only resurrected ones. And so Paul tells them in chapter 3 verse 1. He tells them the resurrection life of the Lord Jesus Christ is pulsing through your eyeballs. Pulsing through your body. Pulsing through your soul. You are alive in Christ. And I'll say the same thing to every believer in the room this morning. doesn't matter how you feel when you walked in this room. The resurrection power of Jesus Christ has been let loose in you. God took that new nature and He planted it deep within you. And He made you a new man or a new woman. That is foundational. Because if that does not happen, you cannot ever kill sin. So let me say this. It would be extremely presumptuous today that is, to assume that Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, you have been raised with Christ is true of every person in this room. Okay? Extremely presumptuous. Highly unlikely. And so let me say this. If you are an unbeliever in this room, I want to speak to you just for a second off this topic. We're about to spend almost an hour talking about killing sin, and I want to remind you that you cannot do that. Okay? The only people that can kill sin are Christians. And so I'm reminding you on the front end that you have something to focus in on that's more urgent for you than learning how to kill sin. And, and, and what you need to focus in on is the Bible tells you that you are dead in sin. That you are dead in sin. And so Satan will throw all kind of distractions to make you think about anything other than repenting of your sin and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. And He'll even come at you with Bible commands. You know what I really need to do is work on this, work on this, work on this. And I'm just saying to you on the front end that you don't need to think about anything else other than repenting of your sin and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because only after you are delivered from the state of deadness in sin can you kill sin, mortify sin, put Sin to death. It's always like this in the Word of God. Always. You have to be saved before you can be sanctified. Okay? It's a false religion to reverse that order. That you're sanctified before you can be saved. That's works religion. It's entirely in contradiction to everything about the Christian gospel. Christ in you first. Then put to death sin in that order. That's very, very important. Second thing I want to remind us of about the recipients of this commandment in verse 5 is they just were told, they just were instructed that the one that they love, their Lord Jesus Christ, is going to soon return. Look at it in verse 4. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. This is the context. 
And Ryan reminded us of this last week, and I was tremendously encouraged by this, and I know many of you were. Ryan reminded us last week that how we spend our life in a moment at the return of Christ, it will be revealed. Either the wisdom of it or the foolishness of it. And so what he said last week is that instantaneously, in a moment, in a millisecond, upon the return of Christ, that all human value systems are going to be instantly flipped upside down. And so, if we're to compare what we're going after in this world, our pursuits in life, if we were to compare them to obtaining treasure, then we were instructed last week to obtain the kind of treasure that's going to last forever. That's going to make sense the moment the Lord Jesus returns. And so, what we were instructed it is this. In the context of Colossians chapter 3, that anything less than seeking the things above, than pursuing the Lord Jesus Christ with everything that you have, anything less than that will be a, a type of treasure that will turn to sand in your hand the moment the Lord Jesus rips the sky wide open. It will make sense never throughout eternity. The only thing that makes sense in light of the Lord Jesus' soon return is to seek the things above with everything that you have. It's just like the CT stud quote. He says this, Only one life will soon be passed and only what's done for Christ will last. And so, these Christians... Have been told you're resurrected ones. Don't waste your life. Don't go after anything but the Lord Jesus Christ with everything you have. And we know that Colossians is about the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Specifically about the supremacy of Jesus Christ in the soul of the believer. And so Paul's been warning these, these Christians in this church about all these dangers that will dethrone Jesus in your life, that will keep you from going after the Lord Jesus with everything you have. And up to this point, those dangers have, have mainly been outside threats of false doctrine and, and, and errors, uh, theological errors, that if they land in your life, you will waste your life because you're, you will go after the wrong things. But I think today, He turns the corner to every single one of us. And He tells us about what I believe is the most serious threat to the supremacy of Jesus in the life of every single person in this room. You say, what is it? I say, indwelling sin. Something more serious than an outside threat. There's an inside threat in your life that will dethrone the Lord Jesus Christ. And unless you learn how to deal with it and fight it, you will waste your entire life and you will hold a pile of sand at the return of the Lord Jesus. So let's observe the commandment. Verse 5. Let's begin with these words. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. 
Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. I want you to stare at it. Something has to die. Something is alive in you that has to die. And you are the one who must take its life. Now, I know, I know that language sounds strange to some of you in this room that are very sensitive to violence. Especially want to say that to some of the ladies in the room. Okay? I understand that. That you don't have a grid for this type of language. You, you don't talk like this. You don't even think like this. Okay? So I want to take a second and I want to allow a few moments for you to stare at this commandment, to read through it a few times, because we want everybody in the room, every disciple of Jesus rallied around this commandment that you have to kill something. You have to take something's life. You have to murder something. You have to execute something. Every single Christian, it is your duty to execute, to murder, and to kill can't get around it. This is the commandment of God's Word. And then it defines for us what must die. Look at verse 5. It tells us the things that are earthly in us. In us. That's the inside threat. The other truth all across this room, not only is every one of you to be involved with killing something, Every one of you has something inside of you that needs to be killed. There's no one that, that's an exception to this. You have earthly things, listen, in you. In you. This is the sinfulness of man. The things that are earthly in us. And I think the best phrase that grabs all of that, the things that are earthly in us, is the phrase in dwelling sin. The sin that dwells in you. Indwelling sin. And the text says it must be executed. It must be killed. Or the Puritans used to say this, it must be mortified. You must kill it. You must mortify indwelling sin. Now, let's back up. This is not the first time this violent language this killing language shows up in Scripture. In fact, Paul is, is just repeating what Jesus taught. And I want to show you that. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 29, the Lord Jesus Christ says this. Okay, so hang on. Let me, let me rewire. Not some fundamentalist, legalist, Bible thumper said this. Got it? The Lord Jesus Christ, really the, the Lord of glory, the God of grace... He really opened His lips and these words came out. Matthew 5, 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members. Than that your whole body goes into hell. Jesus said that. No one has ever been more loving or gracious than Jesus. And Jesus said that. 
Romans chapter 8, verse 13, Paul says this again in another place, slightly different language. He says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So, the mortification of sin, cutting it off, killing it, putting it to death, this is thoroughly and completely biblical. This is Christian. This is not legalism. This is Christianity. Killing sin is Christianity. No matter what the modern day church tells you, the Bible never tells you to make light of sin, to coddle sin. Never tells you that. No matter what men tell you, the Bible never tells you that. It tells you to put sin in a coffin. To kill it. To mortify it. To take its life. And every single Christian is commanded to be constantly involved in the mortification of sin. Brothers and sisters, I will remind us, this is not good advice from the Apostle Paul. This is authoritative demands from God the Holy Spirit. This is the, a demand laid upon you by the Lord of glory. Kill sin. Put to death what is earthly in you. There are things in you right now that must die. And I pray that the Holy Spirit would reveal them to you even before we're done and with our time today. That you would know exactly what the Lord would have you to put to death. I want to say a few things about this warfare just by way of reminder. Just by sitting in this commandment for just a few minutes. Because this is countercultural in every way that you can imagine. Okay? You don't walk in work. You don't walk in the store or whatever rhythms of life you walk in. You don't hear people talk about putting sin in a coffin. This is countercultural in every way. So I want to point out just a few things about this warfare. And the first is that it's ruthless. This warfare is ruthless. Some of you are going to have to work really, really hard to embrace this language with every thing that you have. God is commanding you to kill something in a ruthless way. Ruthless. No mercy. No mercy. I want you to think about this. The Bible is clear that the sinful nature, the old man, he's of such a state and such a condition that he, can, he, can, he or she can never be reformed. You can't reform it. You can't dress it up. You can't put a band-aid on it and make the old man, the sinful man, better. You can never do that. The only remedy for indwelling sin is murder. You can't take any prisoners. You can't make any compromises. If you do that, you fall short of the commandment. It is absolutely ruthless. Absolutely ruthless. Just like the children of Israel, when God in His sovereign determination decided to vomit the peoples out of the land of Canaan. And He sent the children of Israel to dispossess the nations. He commanded that every single one of them die. No mercy. No mercy. This is the same picture. God demands a ruthlessness in you. No compromise in 
this area. I'm going to reference a work by John Owen, a Puritan. His work is called The Mortification of Sin. I'm going to give you a few quotes of that today, but I encourage you to, to, to spend some time at some point, maybe in the next year, reading through that. Especially some of you that are pricked by the Holy Spirit today about things in your life that need to die. be a tremendous help to you. But with this idea of ruthless warfare, listen to what John Owen says in the mortification of sin. He says this, He that is appointed to kill an enemy, if he ceases striking before the enemy ceases living, he does but half his work. I want you to stare at that commandment. I think John Owen's right. That text, that commandment in verse 5, God did not tell us to stab sin. What did He tell us to do? He told us to keep stabbing it until it stops breathing. If you stab it once and it still lives, you fail to keep the commandment. The commandment is not to stab it, to wound it, to harm it. It is to kill it. To kill it. It is a ruthless warfare. Ruthless. Absolutely ruthless. Absolutely ruthless. So I want you to be warned today about stopping short in this work of mortification. I think there's a really good picture of this in the Old Testament. The prophet Elijah goes to the king of Israel and he gives him the symbolic sign of a war that's about to be fought. And I want to read you the verse in 2 Kings chapter 13, verse 18 and 19. It says this, Prophet Elijah tells the king of Israel, Take these arrows... And the king took them. And he said to the king of Israel, Strike the ground with them. And he struck three times and stopped. Then the man of God was angry and said, You should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck down Assyria Assyria, until you had made an end of them. That's a picture. Do not stop striking sin until it dies. If you stop before it dies, you have failed to keep this commandment in verse 5. This is a ruthless warfare. A ruthless warfare. But I also want to point out it's, it's a constant warfare. And it's hard to understand because we're in the language of metaphor. We're not talking about physically killing sin. We're talking about a spiritual metaphor. About putting it to death. Rendering it dead in your life. And when we think put something to death, we think do it once and it's done. But that's not how this mortification works. It's constant in nature. We're repetitively and constantly involved every single day with putting sin to death. Why do we do that? Why is it constant? Because of our enemy. Indwelling sin. What do we know about indwelling sin from the Word of God? It never stops coming at you. It never stops coming at you. There's never a moment where, you know, even two sides in a war that hate each other. Sometimes you'll hear about a ceasefire to try to work things out for a few days, a few weeks, maybe even a few months. 
It's never like that. It's never like that when mortified sin. There is never a moment where your enemy is sitting back and, and, and says, you know what, I'll leave you alone for a few days and you can take it easy and enjoy you know, some leisure. It's never like that. It's constant in nature. There is never to be a moment of peace with sin. Never. Listen to John Owen again. He tells us, he says this, wise words, he says, when sin leaves you alone, then you can leave sin alone. And I think that's wisdom from God because we know that indwelling sin never leaves us alone. By its very nature, it's a cancer that's seeking to spread. It's a power that's, that's seeking to exert its dominion and its influence. It never stops trying to bring forth acts of sin. By its very nature, that is indwelling sin. That's your enemy. Constant warfare. So what that means is that every Christian in the room, you are supposed to be involved with the mortification of sin every single day of your life in this world. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 31. Listen, he says this, I die every day. I die every day. What's he saying? He's not saying what we typically think about dying. He is putting self, putting sin to death every single day. Be reminded of your duty. This is your duty all across the room. That you are to be killing sin every single day. That is not the Green Beret Christian life. That is the normal Christian life. Killing sin every day. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 reminds us that we're supposed to be engaged in warfare with sin on a constant basis because this verse tells us that there are passions within us that are waging war on our soul. I want to read that verse to you. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Now, it is very, very easy to go through the rhythms of the Christian life completely oblivious that there is a war being waged on your soul. And so we're, we're being called, we're being challenged by the Holy Spirit from the Word of God. Wake up to this reality. There is a war being waged on your soul through the sinful passions that are in you. It wants to own you, take you over. And there's not a person in this room, and I know some really, really sweet sisters and some really, really godly brothers in this room. But none of you are so sweet and so godly that you are exempt from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. You have a war being waged in you. Every single one of us. Constant warfare. So here's where I need to stop and I need to ask you a question. Very personal. 
How are you doing with this concept, with this duty, with this idea of daily putting sin to death in your life? How are you doing with that? Is this almost a foreign concept to you? How often are you thinking about it? How much does it come up in your prayers? If you and a brother or you and a sister in this church were to sit down in a spiritual conversation and you were to, you were to give an account, you were to recount the work of God in your life, how much are you talking about mortification? This is what I'm seeing the Lord do in my life. We talk about the Lord teaching us this, teaching us this, teaching us this. Is the Lord teaching you warfare? Is He teaching you how to put things to death in your life? In fact, can you recount the mighty deeds of the Lord in your soul to where He has delivered you from strongholds in your life, bondage to sin? Are you engaged in this work of mortification? Or is this something that you never even think about? If you're honest with yourself. So here's what I want to say. If you are fuzzy here, if you would have a lot of trouble talking about what the Lord's doing and delivering you from indwelling sin, I want you to know a few things. You're not evading that warfare that we just talked about in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. You're not. You're not evading it. There, there is no one in this room. Here's your choice. Okay? You don't have a choice of being involved in the warfare. Your only choice is if you're going to win it or lose it. Victory or defeat. That's the only thing that you get to decide on. This is not like other wars where you can dodge the draft and, and stay at home and watch your buddies go fight on the front line. It's not like that. If you're not fighting, you're not... You're not uh, you're not, it's not that you have evaded warfare, it's that you're losing. You're losing. If you're not fighting, you're losing. That war that is being waged on your soul, you're losing it. The only way that you win it, the only way that you have victory is put to death the deeds of the body. John Owen again encourages us with his famous words. He says this, Be Killing sin, or it will be killing you. Brothers and sisters, that's reality. That's your only decision. You don't have a decision to retreat and to just not participate. You kill sin, or it kills you. This is mortal combat. You're in a death lock. This is it. That's the commandment. Kill sin, or it will be killing you. Now let's take that a step further. Because the text actually moves past sin in general. And it gives us some very specific targets to assault, to mortify, and to kill. Look at verse 5. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. So I want you to think... For a second, Grace Community Church. I want you to think with me. Paul is warning these Christians about threats within that 
will dethrone the Lord Jesus in their life. And the first words out of His mouth about what they're supposed to be on the lookout for is sex and money. Sex and money. And in a lot of ways, that's amazing to me. And the first thought I had when I was thinking through this is some things never change. Is it not amazing that the Word of God knows exactly where to put the knife every single time? It is a sharp sword. The very first things that He makes them aware of, of competing desires for the Lord Jesus Christ, is sex and money. And specifically, we are to deliver death blows to any area, any corruption in these two areas in our life. And we say this, I just cut those five words, five words in verse five, down to two categories, sex and money. And that's because the first four words in the list all point to sexual sin. They just describe it from a different angle every time. Sex and money. That's the warning. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. Now I want you to think about this. First in the list, why in the world would Christians need to be warned about sexual sin? <laughs> why would we need to be warned about sexual sin? The Word of God just assumes this. We're not past this stuff. We haven't graduated past it. We still need to be warned about it. We need to be instructed and taught by God the Holy Spirit how to make war in the, in the realm of sexual sin. So we have four words. You think about that. Repetition in Scripture is an emphasis. Four words. Not just one. God could have gave you one. He gave you four Four words in repetition that come back to the same thing from a different angle. That ought to be a reminder to every disciple. God wants to get your attention about sexual sin. God wants to get your attention about sexual sin. And He gives you very vivid language, very vivid words. God's Word has a name for these things. Sexual immorality, impurity, passions, and evil desires. And we'll say this on the front end. Sexual sin is not something that a Christ follower can ignore. The Holy Spirit is shoving it right in front of your face. He wants to, in mercy, in redemptive mercy, He wants to alarm you. He wants to, he wants to stir you up. And He wants you to be fully conscious of your deficiencies in these areas. Because He wants to bind up your wounds. He, he has a desire to wound in order to heal you. Fourfold. Sexual sin, sexual sin, sexual sin, sexual sin. The first word in the list comes from the Greek word porneia. Sound familiar? We still have filth all over our culture that comes from, from this Greek word. Porn, pornography, pornographic. All, all coming from this Greek root, root porneia. The Greek word porne, is, it, it means prostitute. It's always been filthy, it's still filthy before God. And this word porneia, it, it's a broad word. It is the broadest way 
to describe sexual sin. The broadest way to describe sexual sin. It covers illicit sexual acts of every single kind. It's the broadest word in the New Testament to describe sin. The Bible prohibits any and every sexual act outside of a marriage covenant between a husband and a wife. And this word is a broad umbrella word that covers it all. Sexual immorality, porneia. Second word is translated impurity. And it refers to a state of uncleanness. That first word has an emphasis on the acts that you do. This word has an emphasis on the state that those sinful acts result in. And you know this. If you feasted at the table of sexual sin, you know that it brings you into a state of corruption. You feel unclean. It corrupts the mind. It corrupts the character. This is impurity. It can have a broader meaning in the New Testament. But in Colossians 3, it specifically means sexual impurity. Out of ten times that this word is used in the New Testament, over half of these times are used in the context of sexual sin. Just for a cross-reference there, you can jot down Romans chapter 1, verse 24. Third word is translated passion. This, ref this word refers to very strong physical desires. Again, this word could have a broader meaning in the New Testament, but it's used three times in two of the three times that it's used. It is used in the context of sexual sin. What it means in Colossians chapter 3 verse 5 is sexual passion. Sexual passion. You can jot this down as a cross-reference. Romans chapter 1 verse 26. The same word is used in the same way. These are strong sexual passions that are physical in nature. I want you to grab this. These are strong sexual urges that are physical in nature. They arise from the human body. They're physical. They're bodily urges. Just like your stomach longs for and craves food, this is a bodily Urging for sexual fulfillment. Qualifier. These passions are not natural. They're not natural. They've been corrupted and hijacked by human sin. They have been train wrecked by human depravity. And so they come from your body, but they're not natural urges. They are sinful desires that your body has. To gratify itself with forbidden things. Everything that you desire from your body to gratify your body is not necessarily a natural thing. It can be an exceedingly sinful thing. These are distorted physical desires. And if you are ruled by these, you are no different than an animal. These are animal instincts, physical in nature. They are passions. The fourth word in this list is translated evil desires. And this is getting to the other side of that. These are very strong internal desires. Very strong internal desires. 
This is another word that can, it can be used even in a generic way. That, that word desire can be used in a good way. In fact, that verse that Ryan read, uh, Jesus said, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Same Greek word. But we know that because of sin, because of human depravity, that we have been shot through with sin. And so now, everything that we desire is not holy. In fact, most things that we desire from within are sinful things, forbidden things. And here this word has a very specific meaning. It is referring to evil sexual desires. Romans chapter 1 verse 24 calls this the lust of the heart. That leads to impurity. That leads to the dishonoring of the body. So this is the very fountainhead of sexual sin. This is the, the fountain that feeds the spring. This is where it starts. It's these evil desires within us. Now, very often you will hear things like this. It's not a sin to be tempted. And I agree with that. With everything that I have, I agree with that. But you know, sometimes it's not clear enough that you don't have to act on something to be guilty. All you have to do to sin against God is to desire something that is forbidden. Evil, sexual desire. The Bible has a word for that. It's not called struggling, it's called lust. The Bible has a word for this, it's called lust. Jesus Himself taught this in Matthew 5, 28. I want us to see how serious this is. Some of you had a dad when you were growing up that said stupid things like, you can look, just don't touch. Look at what Jesus said. Matthew chapter 5, 28. He says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus is in direct contradiction with look, don't touch. He, he just told us that we are guilty even with a sinful gaze, a sinful desire that we have gotten to the root of the sin of adultery. So I want this to be really clear. Really clear. All across the room. Male and female. Young and old. The only thing the Bible allows you to do with sinful sexual desire is to kill it. That's it. That's the only thing that you are permitted to do with sexual desires is to drive a stake into the heart of it. Anything less than that is disobedience to what Jesus has taught us in Matthew 5 and what Paul is commanding in Colossians chapter 3. Now, maybe more than ever in church history do we need to be reminded of how serious we're supposed to be involved with killing sexual sin. So I want to talk to you just for a couple of minutes about the culture that you live, eat, sleep, and breathe in. That you live and move in. And I, I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not a doom and gloom in this in any way. It's a wonderful thing to be a Christian in America in our generation. Okay? 
I'm not sad about that. That is our privilege. That is God's sovereign will that this is where we live. This is where we preach. And, and, and I'm not coming against that in any way. I just want you to be aware of the world system that you find yourself in the midst of. So brothers and sisters, each of us live in a culture that for about 50 years, historians have said that our culture has undergone what is called a sexual revolution. It has been rightly described as the most powerful revolution that has ever hit America. More powerful than the American Revolution, Industrial Revolution. This one changed the very fabrics of Western society. It's been in full force for about 50 years. And in every single way that you can imagine, the culture that you live in has declared rebellion and autonomy from the God of Scripture. The culture that you live in has, has sought complete and full liberation from traditional values that govern sexual, um, sexual liberty. This is the culture that you live in. All previous restraints have been removed. Have been removed. You think about that. You think about how fast and how far American culture has come in the sexual revolution since 1960. Think about it. Think about it. 1950s, you wouldn't dream of hearing the word virgin on TV. That was too scandalous to even, to even think about. Now people yawn while they hear things like that. We have commercials on regular television programs that would have been pornographic in nature in 1950. I mean, it is full-scale revolution declaring independence from all cultural bounds all the way to same legalization of same-sex marriage. No restraints. Don't tell me what to do with my body. That's what the culture says. Keep your theology off my biology. That's what the culture says. No restraints. None. They want full sexual autonomy. Pornography is now said to be over a trillion dollar industry in America. Trillion dollar industry in America. And you know this. You know this. You eat, sleep, and breathe in a culture. The new normal that now is sexual promiscuity. You're weird. You are weird in this culture if you walk in sexual purity. You're considered strange in this culture if you make it out of college and you're still a virgin. It's considered something archaic in nature. That's how far the culture's come. New normals are being defined. And here's the danger. In all of that happening around us, the danger is that we become desensitized to God's standard in Holy Scripture. God's standard is don't even look with lust in your heart or you're guilty of adultery. And so we're in great danger of being desensitized to what is forbidden. To being desensitized in our culture to what falls short of God's holy standard. And if you're desensitized 
You don't know what you're supposed to be killing. You don't know what you're supposed to be killing. So I've been praying that God would use this message to remind us how serious He takes sexual sin. So I want to give you this reminder. In the Old Testament, many of the things that we're talking about, they called for the death penalty in the Old Testament. That's, that gives you insight into the God of the Bible's heart and His hatred towards sexual rebellion and sexual sin. Many of these things were punished by death. And listen to this. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 8 is a commandment that we remember that. That these things cost some people their life. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 8. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. The God of Scripture killed them. A plague and a fire and a wrath came out from the presence of the Lord. And 23,000 people fell in a single day. That's meant to sober us up of how serious God takes sexual sin. And here's the problem that some of us find ourselves in. Is we have been desensitized. And we have believed a very specific lie that we can continue on in these things and get away with it. Listen to me. I'm not coming in any way with legalistic judgment. These are wounds of grace. Listen to me. Some of you in this room have believed the lie that you can continue to walk in sexual sin and get away with it. And get away with it. You have believed that. That you're going to evade all the principles of God's sovereign universe. And you're going to come out of this thing unscathed. And this is simply not true. Simply not true. You're not going to get away with it. You're not coming out of sexual sin unscathed. In fact, the book of Proverbs is very specific. And it describes the foolishness of walking in sexual sin and yet expecting no consequences. Listen to this verse. Proverbs chapter 6 verse 27. You just ask and answer this question in your soul. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and not be burned? You answer that. Can you take up a piece of glowing metal and carry it across a room? And expect that glowing, fiery hot piece of metal not to burn you. And the answer to every logical person in the room is no. That thing's going to sear me. If I pick up that coal, I'm going to have burns on my hands and on my clothes. It's going to set me on fire. And for some reason, because of the deceitfulness of sin, there's some of you in this room that think the exact opposite of that, that you can carry fire next to your chest and come away unscathed and not be burned. And I just want to say, as your brother in Christ, never going to happen, no chance. No chance. In fact, God promises in Hebrews chapter 12, God promises every single believer 
that rebels against Him and walks in sin, He promises His fatherly discipline. It is a guarantee. He will not let you walk in this with no consequences. He won't. So you have to uproot this lie. It's never going to happen that you're coming out of this thing unscathed. Now, when I say this, I am not talking over you as a moral superior. I'm not. I'm not in any way. All across this room, I'm down in the trenches with you. I know what it's like to be tempted. I know what it's like to fall into sin. And I know what God's Word says about these things. We are encouraging one another. We're supposed to be stirring one another up. That none of us are hardened by this stuff. I'm not talking down to you. I'm not talking down to you. But some of you don't believe the seriousness of this sin. And the problem is, we got brothers and sisters all across this room that can testify to the pain of sexual sin. All across this room. If you would allow us, and we could get a conversation in your ear, stack deep, 10, 20, 30 believers in this room, and we could look at you in the face, and we could say, we have participated in this sexual revolution, and it did not go well for us. Got scars to prove it. It causes pain. We don't come out unscathed. And some of you don't believe that. Some of you don't believe that. Many of us in this room can testify to personal rebellion against God in this area. And so if you gave us just a millisecond of a chance to talk with you about the dangers of sexual sin, we would say exactly what the Bible says to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, Brothers and sisters, flee sexual immorality. Turn your back on it and run from it. You're not evading consequences. You're carrying fire next to your chest. Carrying fire next to your chest. I pray that God convinces you of that today. The serious nature of this sin. And I want to say one more thing in this area. Been, I know what it's like to live with you. I know what it's like to encourage many of you in this room. And, and I know this is true because some of you have told me this. And I know this is true because I know human nature from Holy Scripture. And so I know that there are several people in this room that are believing lies in this area of sexual sin and sexual immorality. And the lie is that you will never be any different. That you are powerless to resist this thing. That you fall and fall and fall and fall and it will never be any different. And for every Christian in the room, I'm telling you, that is a lie. That is not reality. That is not the truth of God's Word. It is in direct contradiction to Holy Scripture. You do not have to fall. You are not powerless. You have been raised with Christ. Christ lives in you. The fullness of deity in a body has unleashed His power in you. Do you really believe that sexual sin is more powerful than the Lord of glory? 
In the words of Tony White in the back of the room, the Lord Jesus Christ is more powerful than sin like a nuclear bomb killing a mosquito. Not even close. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. But I want to be really specific about this. Some of you believe that lie with everything that you have and you know why? Because you have been listening to a humanistic psychology that your culture has rammed down your throat. That this is who you are because of your experience, because of your biology, because of your DNA. And you're eating this stuff up like candy more than you're giving attention to the revealed will of God in His holy Word. You believe that because you're listening to men instead of listening to God. The fact that a Christian will never be any different, always has to fall in this area, is direct contradiction to Holy Scripture. Romans chapter 6 verse 11. God commands you to consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You want me to share with you the exact opposite of that? I'm always going to struggle. I'm always going to fail in this. Exact opposite of Romans chapter 6. It is a contradiction to the Word of God and you're wrong. God is right. You are wrong. You have believed an altered false reality. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 13. This is the Word of God. This is the Word of God. God is faithful. God is faithful. The ultimate decision and the ultimate reality for you is not the experiences that happened to you when you were young. Or the predispositions that you might or might not have. Or the weakness of your will or whatever it is. That's not ultimate. What's ultimate? God is faithful. God is faithful. And He's waiting on somebody to believe that. About sexual sin. God is faithful and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. That's the Word of God. And we need to be encouraging each other all around this room. This is not something that you just hide away in the corner. This is something that you bring other brothers and sisters into and they give you the encouragement like that in the Word of God. Don't believe those lies. God is faithful. You are not powerless to resist this. Christ lives in you. There is a way of escape. You're not without a choice. So what this means is that we have no excuses for our sexual rebellions. We have no excuses for our sexual sins. God has provided a way of escape. God has given us the indwelling Christ, unleashed the power of the resurrection in the believer's soul. We have no excuse. Have no excuse. And the only thing that's left for us to do is to be awakened to every area in our life, every little bitty concession that we have made in our life to sexual sin. Every thought, every look, every every little little joke, whatever it is, every single concession that we have made to this monster, we need to be woken up to it. 
We need to be reminded of God's holy standard. And then, once we see that, and it's very personal, and God has identified very specific things in your life that must be dealt with, Colossians 3.5, I'll come like a trumpet from, from the back of your brain. What do I do with it? Once God shows it to me, what do I do with it? Four times, fourfold reminder, kill sexual sin, kill sexual sin, kill sexual sin, kill sexual sin, put it to death, put it in a coffin, stop coddling it, stop putting band-aids on it, stop believing lies about it, and lay it in the tomb. Kill it in the power of the resurrected Christ. Kill all of it. Every expression of it. Make war on those animal-like instincts that are exerting force in your body. And mortify these forbidden sexual desires. Brothers and sisters, let's make this more specific. Kill, be killing sexual sin. Or sexual sin will be killing you. That's reality. We have to be woken up to that. It's reality. It is the first thing that we are warned about. Of taking Jesus' place in our life. Sexual immorality. Now let me say this. I told you today it was going to be a hard message. I gave you a warning on the front end. and that's not. Um, my intention is not to make it hard. But I do want to say this. I know how self-righteousness works because I've done it. Because I've fought in it. I know how self-righteousness works. So I want to say this. Maybe there's somebody in the room and you're feeling pretty good about today's sermon. You're feeling pretty good because you're feeling pretty clean in this area. And you found yourself on the inside wanting to give some hearty amens. Man, let's deal with that sexual sin. In the church. Let me say one more thing before you strut out of here today with a smile on your face. And let me call your attention to this last word in verse 5. Because he switches to a different category. Look at what he says. Put to death covetousness which is idolatry. To covet, and what this verse is talking about, is something that is so accepted in our culture and in our friendships and in our relationships. Yes, we have become dull to sexual sin. Ten times more, we have become dull to covetousness. This sin is, is it, it, it's being consumed with the desire to have more than you have now. And listen to this. Satan does some weird things in the human mind. And he makes you think stupid things about God's Word. Such as, this is only a sin for rich people. That's wrong. That's wrong. Covetousness, a desire to have more than you have now. Consumed by desires for more. This can be rich and poor alike. A poor man can walk around this room consumed, absolutely consumed with more, 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 more. It's not about having a lot of money. 
It's about your money and your stuff having you. Grabbing a hold of your heart. And the pursuit of your life being hijacked for these material things. It mainly means material possessions. More, more, more. That's covetousness. Now, it's very deceitful. Because in a lot of ways, like we said, we've accepted this. We've accepted a certain level of it. Even in this church culture, there are certain forms of sexual immorality that won't fly. Even in a nominal church culture. But you can be involved with the grossest forms of greed and fly under the radar. You can even be a deacon in, in most local churches in our city. That's not a knock. Listen, I'm, that's not a knock. That's just waking you up to, we're desensitized to this. We're desensitized to it. I just read this week in the, in the book of Numbers, coming through the book of Numbers. You wouldn't think, this wouldn't be on like your top list of sins. But the children of Israel, over and over, they're complaining against the Lord. Complaining against the Lord. And you know what? Some of them died for that. Some of them died for this. I want more than what I have. I want more than what the Lord's given me. I want more, more, more. Not satisfied with the lot that God has provided for me. Jesus warned us about the danger of this sin. Luke chapter 12 verse 15 He said, Take care and be on guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of His possessions. Brothers and sisters, when your life is wrapped up in your stuff, you're guilty. You're guilty. Covetousness. But look at the text. It actually doesn't stop there. That's bad enough. But it hammers it home with these words. Which is idolatry. Which is idolatry. I will never forget learning from God's Word that I am no different than a pagan that bows down to a carved totem pole when I worship false gods in my life. That's exactly what He's making us aware of in this text. You don't have to bow before carved image. There are false gods that are worshipped in the church besides the Lord Jesus Christ. That's, that's what the word idolatry means. And so, if you are guilty of, I want more. I want more. I want more, more, more. You are guilty of idolatry. Bowing down to a false god and worshiping the creation instead of the Creator. And that's meant to wake you up. If you didn't hate it, hate this sin before, how about now? It's a false religion. It's a false religion. It's no different than you going down the road to the Jehovah's Witness church to just worship one Sunday. You have red, you have red lights blinking all over your mind. That's wrong! I'm departing away from Christ. And you need to see this sin in that same way. You cannot walk with Jesus and walk in covetousness. Jesus told you this. 
Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. You cannot serve God and money. You cannot serve God and money. And I just want to say this to us. And I need you to say this to me. Brothers, sisters, this is not one way. This is the standard that we're encouraging one another towards. And so here's my warning. There are some of you in this room that can deceive everybody else in this room in regards to this sin. You can look more godly than you are. You, you can deceive us in how much of a grip that your stuff has on your heart. But here's what you can't do. You can't deceive God. You can deceive men in these areas, but the Word of God calls you an idol worshiper. That you are practicing a false religion. And so may the Holy Spirit wake us up to the wickedness of this sin. This is a Christ substitute. A pseudo-Christ. It is meant to take Jesus' place. It is a false God. It is a false God. 1 Timothy reminds us of the seriousness of what we're talking about. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10 tells us that the love of money, listen, will the, the, those who love money, they will pierce themselves through with many pains. How about that? The next time that that thought lands, lands on you. More, more, more. And you say, that's like stabbing myself in the stomach with a sword. More, more, more. That's not pleasure, pleasure, pleasure. That's piercing myself through with many pains. And then listen, that same verse goes on to say this. Through this, some have even wandered away from the faith. Do you fear the pursuit of money, career, wealth, stuff? Do you fear it the way that you should fear it? That some turn their back on the true gospel and walk away from the resurrected Lord of glory because of stuff and a pursuit of money. How do you know if you're guilty of this? I'll give you one marker. Probably the best Bible sign in this area is your giving. Listen to me. Your giving. Think this through. These two things cannot coexist in the same heart. More, 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 and generosity, generosity, generosity. That's not how it works. You have one or the other. You understand this? They can't cohabitate the same human being. You are either greedy and consumed with more, 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 me, 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 or you have been set free from this false God and you are open-handed, generous, giving, disciple of Jesus. I think it's the best vital sign that you have. And at the end of the day, I think you're one of two things. You're an open-handed disciple of Jesus that gives sacrificially and consistently of the resources that God has given you. Or you're a closed-fisted disciple of Jesus that only cares about yourself and your family. And if you're guilty of being closed-fisted, then you're guilty of covetousness. 
All you're thinking about, more, 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 me, me, me. And when I'm praying is that the Lord would wake anyone up in this room that needs to hear that, that He would wake you up. That's a pathway to a false religion. That's a pathway to worshiping a false God. So let that label of idolatry cause you to have even more of a distaste for that sin. It is a Christ substitute in your life. It can't even begin to take the place of the Lord Jesus. Let's close with a warning in verse 6. Verse 6. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. So you have a list of sins. And then here's how he ends it. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. So I want you to think about this. Look at me for a second. How could this warning be more serious than it is? If, you, if I were to give you a piece of paper... And I were to say, manipulate the words, add words, add whatever in that you want to make this warning sound more hardcore than this. The wrath of God is coming on these things. Do you see that? If I have that piece of paper in front of me, I have no idea how to make this a more severe of a warning. This is pushing the very limits of the human language to get our attention. The wrath of the Almighty, the wrath of the Sovereign, the wrath of the Holy, Holy, Holy One is coming upon these things. And I wonder if we take that warning with as much severity as is given to us just in, in that plain verse. The wrath of God is coming upon these things. Now, let me tell you what that clearly means. Okay? Write this down. Take a note of this. This verse clearly teaches that those who persist in sexual sin and covetousness, those who go after sex and money instead of Jesus, will go to hell. That's what the verse means. Listen to me. Read it again. Upon, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. It's coming. Those who live in these things are not going to heaven. They're not. Believers in the Lord Jesus Christ don't live in these sins. How do you know that? Verse 7 is exactly what that says. You used to live in these things. You don't live in these things anymore. That's exactly what the verse means. Christians do not live in these sins. Do you know how many times in your life that you're going to be tempted to smuggle in a version of Christian conversion that does not meet that standard? You're going to be tempted to smuggle a soft version of Christian conversion that does not meet this standard. You're going to be tempted in that way until they put you in the ground. This is the standard of Holy Scripture. Those who walk in these sins will not inherit the kingdom of God. What that means is that verse 6 
stands in direct contradiction to the popular theology that's flying around uh, your, your church culture that Jesus Christ can be your Lord or your Savior and not your Lord. You ever heard that? At 20 years old, I made Jesus my Savior. At 28 years old, when I really started walking with God, I made Jesus my Lord. You ever, I, I, I've heard, I, I've been taught that. This is not making fun of. I'm just relating to you. Have you ever heard that before? That Jesus became my Savior first, and then He became my Lord. And the implication is this. That I was saved when I was 20. I was saved, and I was, I was justified, and my sins were put away when I was 20. But at 28, or whatever it is, that's when I started walking with the Lord Jesus. That's when He became my Lord. Impossible. Impossible. It is impossible to divide the Lord Jesus in half. That you will take the, the, the half of the Lord Jesus that's your Savior and leave the half of the Lord Jesus that is the Lord of glory. He doesn't come on your terms. He doesn't come on your terms. Saving faith in the Lord Jesus is saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a direct contrast to what we're told so often. That you can believe the gospel. There can be no fruit in your life whatsoever. But you're saved. But you're saved. Once saved, always saved. Said that prayer. I, I was saved. I was justified. But I didn't walk with God or obey God. This verse contradicts that in every way you can imagine. And that doctrine could not be more wrong than it is. It's a false version of Christian conversion. Those who persist in these things will not go to heaven. They will go to hell. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 and 10. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. God, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance, no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now, I know that sounds hardcore. That's the standard of the kingdom of God. That's the standard. Now, I want to encourage you with something. The Lord Jesus can use verses like that in this room to wake up a false convert. He can use verses like that to pull, pull the mask off of a pretend Christian. How do I know that? He did that to me. That's what He did. That was me. Jesus is my Savior. Then Jesus was my Lord. And this nonsense, this and that. And the Lord convicted me of that. That I named the name of Christ for years in this world. But He was not my Lord. I had no evidence of regeneration. No evidence of the new nature. And so this was a wound of grace in my life. When God the Holy Spirit shoved His Word in my face and said, You are not saved. You're not saved. And so some of us in this room, we, we may need to be woken up to that reality. That maybe we've been deceived and we're trying to go through the motions of the Christian life. Do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this. 
And some of us might not know God. And part of the evidence of that might be a continuing pattern of sin specifically in these areas. God can do that with His Word. And I want to encourage all of us, every Christian in the room, every believer, that God can use warnings like this in Scripture to produce holiness in you. There's some really, really stupid ideas that, that when we're going after gospel obedience and Christian holiness that we never talk about the bad stuff. The warnings are for the church. The warnings are for Christians. And brothers and sisters, if you are a true believer, how do you process the warnings? Here's not how you do it. Oh, well, those don't apply to me. That's not how you process the warnings of Holy Scripture. True believers take heed. They hear these things. They're the ones that actually take the warning serious. And the warnings of Holy Scripture are actually a means that God uses to cause us to persevere to the very end. If you don't believe that, read the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews. So I want to say this. With this closing mention of wrath, we have been reminded of what God has saved us from. We can raise the hand all across the room that, that it gets worse. It gets worse than that analogy that we began with. That upon the return of Christ, those who live in these ways, they're going to hold sand in their hand. It gets worse than that because the Bible just told you that those who live in these ways not only hold sand in their hand, worthless life in eternity. Not only that, the Bible promises that the wrath of God is coming full throttle on these sins. And when we hear stuff like that, we're reminded that we're no different. We are brands plucked from the fire. We are trophies of the grace of God. We deserve that wrath, but we have been rescued. Let the wrath of God be a reminder of what you have been saved from. Saved from. And let's walk away from this place today with this severe warning that the wrath of God is coming on these things. What else do we need? What additional language do we need to stir up in us unimaginable severity to kill sin in our life. We've been told we have Christ. We've been told that these things are intended to take His place. We've been told that we have the power to put them to death. And we've been told that the wrath of Almighty God is coming upon these things. What else do we need to see? What else do we need to hear? To take the means of grace and put to death our sin. Unimaginable severity. Is what this passage demands. No matter the cost. No matter the personal cost. Unimaginable severity. And it's my confidence all across Grace Community Church. That you are the chosen of God. That you are true believers. And that you hear the warnings of scripture. And you will persevere to the very end. I'm confident in that. Let's pray to that end. That God would use his word today to wake us up. That we'd be killing sin. Because we've been made aware that it's going to kill us. And let's ask the Lord to give us success as we make war on these false gods, these Christ substitutes in our life. One thing you will never hear in heaven. Brett, 
John Mark, Tim, y'all are a little too serious about killing the things that were earthly in you. Why'd y'all take me so serious about Christian holiness and mortification of sin? You'll never regret it. You will never hear those words throughout all of eternity. Let's pray together. Father, we bow the knee to You. And we ask, Lord, that You would visit the preaching of Your Word today. God, that You would cause Your Word to be effective. That You would cause it to bear fruit in our life. God, I pray that You would cause these things to be light to some among us, Lord. God, I pray that You would give us warnings so deep that we feel them. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday of this week, God, that it wouldn't be a fading, fleeting moment. Do whatever it takes to get our attention, Lord. We want to walk in holiness with You. We want to walk in holiness. We want every bit of You that we can have in this world. We want to seek the things above. Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name, Amen.